Welcome to the Forge Truth Podcast, where we are building great men as God defines greatness. Forge is the movement of men with a mission to help all men realize they are the deeply beloved, redeemed sons of the Most High God. I'm your producer, Zach, and I'm here to discuss the issues that affect men the most with our two hosts, Dr. Pete Allenson, lifelong pastor and leader of Forge, and Jason Quinones, Bishop of Core Faith Church in Oviedo, Florida. Men, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How you doing? I'm good, good. Seems like it's been forever since we've been together. Yeah, yeah, it's been tough. We haven't been around for a long time, but uh, the podcast marches on. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we have a special guest joining us today. Ken Ham is joining us on the podcast today. He's the founder and CEO of Answers in Genesis and two popular attractions, the acclaimed Creation Museum and the internationally known Ark Encounter in Kentucky. He's a much in-demand Christian speaker, and he is the author of more than 30 books with a foundation of Genesis 1 through 11 as being critical to understanding the gospel and vital to today's current issues. So, Ken, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be with you all. Hey, we're glad you're here. And, you know, right off the bat, it is great to hear that accent of yours. So tell us, where are you from? Well, uh, I'm originally from Australia, but uh, apparently in America I have an accent, but I didn't have an accent until I arrived here. Uh, but we moved over from Australia in 1987 and uh, worked in California for seven years with the Institute for Creation Research and and then moved to northern Kentucky, where we're now located specifically to build a creation museum. So we now have the two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world, the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum. The ministry that looks after it all is called Answers in Genesis. And uh, the ministry really started in our house in Australia in 1977. So I've been involved in creation apologetics ministry for a long time, and we produce all sorts of books. I've written a number of books and curricula. We do domestic and international speaking. We have all sorts of the outreaches, our own streaming platform, and so it goes on. So it's a, it's a big international uh, ministry that impacts millions of people a year. So I'm thrilled to be able to share some of the things with you all. Yes, and we're so thankful for your ministry over the years. Now, you've written a new book, and we want to talk about it with you. So tell us about your book, Divine Dilemma. What motivated you to write this book, and what's it about? Well, I'll read the subtitle as well, and the subtitle is Wrestling with the Question of a Loving God in a Fallen World. And, you know, one of the things that I have found over the years is one of the most asked questions by Christian and non-Christian is that uh, how can you have a loving God when we have all this death and suffering in the world? You know, when when there's tragedy in people's lives, even with Christians, people question, why would God allow this to happen? You know, sometimes there can be uh, uh, people that suffer terribly, who are are great Christian people, and yet they suffer terribly from some awful disease. Or maybe it's it's a child or someone who dies, or a young person who dies tragically in an accident. And, you know, non-Christians also look at this, and non-Christians are the ones who would say, uh, you know, how can you people believe in a loving God? Uh, look at all this death and suffering. If there's a God, why would he allow children to suffer? And, you know, often you'll hear atheists bring up, oh, over in this country in Africa, there's this horrible little beastie that burrows into people's eyes and blinds them and ends up killing them and so on. Uh, so 
Uh, how can you believe in, in a loving God? And so one of the things I wanted to do was to deal with that issue and deal with it at a very personal level. And, you know, I, I should say, first of all, you know, in the creation apologetics ministry that uh, I am in, one of the things that I have said over the years, over and over again, and it's really a cornerstone of really what we speak on and teach at Answers and Genesis, is that the first 11 chapters of the Bible are foundational to everything. Genesis 1 to 11 is foundational to marriage. It's foundational to gender. It's foundational to the family. It's foundational to the gospel. It's All doctrine is ultimately founded in Genesis 1 to 11. And ultimately, if you want to deal with any issue, it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's the age of the earth or fossils or the gender issues or whatever it is, you have to start with Genesis 1 to 11 because that's the history God has revealed to us in geology, biology, astronomy, anthropology that's foundational to everything. The origin of all the basic entities of life in the universe are there in Genesis 1 to 11, and the meaning of anything is dependent upon its origin. And so in Genesis 1 to 11, you have the origin of sin and the origin of death. So if you're going to deal with the issue of death, suffering, disease, you have to start with Genesis 1 to 11. And I wanted to explain this to build a biblical worldview dealing with suffering, uh, but I wanted to do it from a perspective of uh, real personal uh, examples. And in, in our lives, uh, you know, my mother, uh, who passed away in 2019 at the age of almost 92, uh, well, my mother uh, had to suffer through the death of my father at 66 years old. She lived for 26 years without him. Seven years to the day after my father died, I had a younger brother who was a great Bible teaching pastor, a really great Bible teaching pastor with a young family. He died of a very dehumanizing, horrible brain disease over a period of two years. And so how did we as a family and as Christians, my mother is a very godly mother, a very godly lady, and how did we cope with all of this? And I wanted to write a book to help people get answers to all of this from a biblical worldview perspective, but at the same time, to be realistic about the fact we're humans and we we struggle with these issues even as Christians. And we ask those questions, why and how could that be and why would God allow this? And so this book really goes through tracing, you know, my mother and our family dealing with death and suffering and uh, answering questions in a particular way. And, and, you know, I've read other books on this, and maybe you have too, that sort of, I don't know, sometimes I think they try to super spiritualize things too much. And it's like, suck it up. God's in control. You know, all things work together for good. Just put up with it. You know, trust God. I wanted in this book to say, hey, we're human. And, 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 you know, we could easily let ourselves get angry at God. We shouldn't do that. We can question, we struggle, cry out to God, we grieve, and that's okay. Uh, but nonetheless, we still have to stand back and let God be God. So that's that's why I wrote this book, dealing with that whole issue. Very personal. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. So kind of thinking about that personal struggle, right? I, I know we're going to get into the theological side of things, but as a man of God, as a guy who believed in the Bible, were there some specific questions that you wrestled with personally when your brother was going through that with your father passing away relatively young? I mean, all of us, I think, uh, struggle with these sorts of questions. Like my brother. My brother was 
a great Bible teaching pastor who stood on the Word of God, who believed Genesis as as I did. In fact, uh, he and his family supported us financially in the early days of our ministry in Australia, and he loved our ministry. And, you know, you, you say to yourself, Lord, this doesn't make sense. For a start, we need more Bible teaching pastors that are preaching God's Word and standing on God's Word, not less. You know, I, I remember my mother saying, the liberal pastor down the street that doesn't believe God's word and preaches against the miracles and so on, uh, he's as healthy as an ox. And yet, you know, my son, she would say, he loves God's word and devoted to God's word and and preaches it, and yet look what's happening uh, to him. And so, you know, I, we ask those questions. I mean, even to this day, I say to myself, "It's it, you know, I, I still wonder why God does that to allow some great Bible-teaching people. I mean, don't we need more of these people? Um, but at the same time, uh, we have to stand back and look at it from a, a whole biblical worldview perspective. But I think I think that's the thing we struggle with. We know death is a result of sin, and we know everyone's going to die. Everyone's under the judgment of death. Uh, but seeing someone also die of such a dehumanizing disease, I think that was another aspect that was a struggle for me. Watching my brother, I mean, he lost he lost his ability to think, lost his ability to speak, lost his memory, and you're seeing all that, and you do struggle with those issues. So to me, that was probably the biggest things to to, to have to struggle with. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that occurs to us as pastors is we often interact with people who have acute pain, you know, have a heart attack or they lose somebody to a heart attack. But it's that ongoing chronic uh, suffering that is so painful and often pushes people away from Jesus Christ. Uh, how do you address that issue of the long term suffering? Well, um, again, you know, we're only finite human beings, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, what, one of the things I do, for instance, in, in the book, uh, I use some examples to say, look, uh, you know, you could, you could look at various circumstances today and they don't make sense to us. Like for my brother, for my brother, Robert, I think of the fact that, well, I've now written the book. In fact, I wrote a previous book, but this is a much updated, expanded, and a lot more information in it. And, and uh, you know, and and this particular book has has been very popular. A lot of people uh, obtaining this, and people telling me how much it's helped them. And I think, you know, maybe my my brother is actually ministering to more people uh, in, in this book today than he did, or because of what he went through. And then it makes us all think about these issues too. Uh, but I, I like to look at it from the perspective of Job. You know, we know Job went through a lot of suffering. And, of course, he had friends that gave him some very bad advice and not so good advice. Uh, and, you, you know, he lost his children. Uh, he he had terrible suffering with uh, uh, boils on his skin and so on. Uh, and then... Uh, we get to the stage where where Job himself wants to justify himself. You know, he was a good person, good in quotes, because no one's truly good, only God. Uh, we're all sinners. Uh, but try to justify himself before God. And then what happened? God says, okay, Job, listen to this. And then you read in Job 38, 39, 40, 41, and then into uh, 42, where God 
talks to Job, particularly about a lot of things in regard to creation. What about this? What about that? What about this, Job? Do you know this? Do you know how that works? Do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this? And then in Job chapter 42, we see a different Job because Job stands back and he says, I now see you. In other words, I, I now understand who you are. I repent in dust and ashes. You know all things. In other words, no, I shouldn't be questioning God. He knows everything. I've got to let God be God. Even if I don't understand it, I've got to let God be God. And, you know, that that passage in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 22, uh, I think some people misinterpret that at times. You know, all things work together uh, for good. It doesn't mean all things are good. Uh, it means, but God is in control and he'll use all things for good to them that love the Lord. You know, you th you think about the crucifixion. The crucifixion was a terrible, evil event. You could look at that and say that was evil. The people who crucified Christ, that was evil. Look what happened and the horrendous suffering. But God used that evil event for our salvation, to provide a gift of salvation. You've got to stand back and say, wow. Or you think of maybe Queen Esther. She obviously lost her parents at a young age. Imagine, imagine people saying, why would God do that? Why would a little girl be allowed to lose her parents? That doesn't seem right. That's not right. Now, you know, uh, she doesn't have her parents and so on. And yet all those circumstances God used to save an entire group of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you stand back and say, wow. And I think in the long run, yes, we suffer. Yes, we grieve. We can question like Job. But then we've got to get to the position Job got to in the final analysis and say, I'm going to let God be God. Yeah, and I, I think for me, one of the comforting things is that we worship a God who himself is not unfamiliar with suffering. You know, when Jesus became man, uh, he faced suffering himself. And I think for me as a Christian to know that like uh, God who absolutely could have saved himself from ever experiencing suffering allowed himself to feel the same suffering uh, that we as humans feel to be subject to a broken creation um, that he made. Uh, I think it's really comforting. What lessons do you think Christians could take from that, from Jesus' uh, suffering? Well, you know, as, as we think about that, I, I would like to stand back and look at a, a little bigger picture as well. And that is, if you think about the fact that Jesus is our creator and he created us and we in Adam sinned, which means we committed high treason against the God of creation, we don't even deserve to exist. We deserve nothing. And yet, God in his mercy provided a way for us to be saved. And I, I think about that verse that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And you think about that and you say, why is God calling death precious? Because, you know, as 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 uh, Paul says in Colossians, for instance, and other places too, we're, we're alienated from God because of our sin. And so when we rebel against God, we're alienated from God. And God could have left us that way, separated from him forever. But he loved us so much. He wants us to spend eternity with him. So he placed upon us the judgment of death so that he could rescue us. So in a way, it's it's a loving act. And we are not above the consequences of our sin. And so now, because he no longer holds everything together perfectly, things fall apart. And I think it it gives us a sense 
when you think of you know the judgment you will now earn your food in the sweat of your brow there's now going to be thorns and thistles things are going to fall apart now because god doesn't hold everything together perfectly things run down our bodies run down and we think of that suffering but what it should be reminding us of is our sin did this we don't deserve anything our sin did this and how bad is sin i i to me it gives us a little taste in a way i don't think we we comprehend what it means that god is holy and we sinned against a holy god and, and really in all this suffering disease instead of looking at god and blaming god we should be looking at ourselves and saying look what our sin has done and yet god wants to save us and provide a way uh, for us to be saved and you know it it's like when the tower of siloam uh, fell on people and killed 18 of them uh, luke 13 uh, and jesus said you know, was that their, t- uh, why did they die? Were well, they worse sinners than others that, you know, they suffered this? And his answer was repent. In other words, that was their turn to die and everyone's going to die. And so, instead of looking at people and saying, why did God let that person die? Or why did God make that person suffer? I think we should be standing back and saying, Everyone's going to die. Everyone's under the judgment of sin. This life is nothing compared to eternity. The most important thing is we need to repent. We need to commit our lives to the Lord and know that when we die, we will go back to be with him, which is precious to God because then we're not alienated from him. Mm. Mm, that's powerful, and that's really gospel-centered. And, uh, you know, in Job, he doesn't answer the question uh, to to Job. He just, he just says, who are you to answer back? to me. Uh, so I, I appreciate the, well, listen, as we cannot talk to you without asking about some of the most controversial aspects of your ministry over the years, uh, with a focus on Genesis one through 11, what would you say are some of the most controversial parts of your teaching and where the church is still struggling today to understand Genesis? Oh, wow. I'd say the most controversial part in people's minds, uh, the most controversial part as far as the secular world and as far as the Christian world and many of our our pastors and Christian leaders and seminary professors has to do with the age of the earth. Yeah. That is the the issue Uh, because, uh, you know, how can you believe in six literal days? How can you believe in a young earth? It's so overwhelming that the earth is billions of years old. And, and you know, the secular world mocks at us and they'll call you anti-academic and anti-intellectual and anti-scientific if you only believe in thousands of years for the age of things. And I I believe the, the main reason for that is this. If the, if the earth and the universe is only about 6,000 years old, as we say, based upon the Bible, the six days being literal days and the, adding up those dates in the Old Testament, those genealogies we have there that they give you when people were born and when they died and so on. If it's only a few thousand years old, there's there's no way you you can postulate uh, evolutionary ideas. I mean, you need an incomprehensible amount of time to postulate the idea that one kind of animal could change into another. Because we see animals change, but those changes are always within their own kind. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs change into dogs and cats into cats and elephants into elephants. Uh, but given enough time, supposedly, one kind will change into another. You've got to have an incomprehensible amount of time. And then from a Christian perspective, 
I personally believe that a lot of our leaders have been so intimidated by the world that if you believe in six literal days and a young earth, then uh, you are anti-academic, anti-scientific, anti-intellectual, and people don't want that. And so that will be the most controversial thing as far as, you know, our stand. And and then people try to make out, I find a lot of Christians try to make out, because we make a bold stand, because see, if you believe in millions of years, if there was millions of years before man, then the fossil record was laid down millions of years before man. And the fossil record is a record of death. It has evidence of cancer in the bones in the fossil record. You've got all that before man sinned. Then after man, after God made man, he said everything was very good. Then you've got God calling uh, cancer good and so on. It doesn't make sense. We believe most of the fossil record came from the flood. Uh, but uh, the, the problem is that many of our Christian leaders and others have adopted the ideas of millions of years and reinterpreted the days of creation, reinterpreted God's word. And when we speak boldly on standing on a on a young earth, and young earth is not the issue. The issue for us is biblical authority. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. issue. We mm-hmm. see the age of the earth issue as one that undermines biblical authority. But many people claim we're saying you've got to believe in a young earth to be saved. Well, that's nonsense. Salvation is through grace and uh, faith and so on. Uh, you know, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. It doesn't say and believe in six literal days in a young earth, you'll be you'll be saved. So it's not a salvation issue per se, but it's a biblical authority issue. And that's the point. So uh, it it is uh, the major point of contention, I believe, when it comes to talking about the topic of Genesis. So what is the range of a young earth? Uh, what, what can I, if, if I say I believe in a young earth, uh, what's acceptable? 6,000 was what I think Bishop Usher talked about. Uh, but h- how many years would you go and still say, we believe in a young earth? Well, here's what I would say. How would you know how old the earth was unless you knew someone who knows everything who was there who told you when it started, right? And there's only one who does that, and that is God. And if I start with his word, if I take those days as ordinary days, and I certainly do, Take those days as ordinary days. I mean, Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in six days. That's where a seven-day week comes from. And I believe right from Genesis 1, 1, in fact, in, in Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. That is Genesis 1, 1, and the sea and everything. So from Genesis 1, 1, all the way through Genesis 1, you've got the six days Adam was made on day six. We know Adam had a son, Seth, at 130. And then you can read through all those genealogies. And although the New Testament has genealogies that summarize uh, those uh, Old Testament genealogies, the ones in the Old Testament are detailed, tell you when they were born, when they died. And actually, this is what Archbishop Usher did. And he's a much maligned man, I believe. Because what he said was you start from Scripture, those genealogies get to the time of Abraham, Abraham to Christ, Christ to the present comes to 6,000. So we as a ministry would say, we would say that the whole earth and universe is about 6,000 years old based upon taking the Scripture that way. And so we don't allow for major gaps in the genealogies or anything like that. If you just take it as written, we're saying it's about 6,000 years. Certainly not millions of years. I know there are some in the creationist circles that would say they allow for some gaps in the genealogies and allow up to 10,000 years. 
we don't happen to take that, uh, but you cert- we certainly don't allow for anything of the millions of years. Okay. All right. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of Christian men today are wrestling with is speaking what they believe to be true in a culture that doesn't believe that to be true. And knowing when to be bold, um, when to speak out, when to uh, stand up for your faith. Uh, I think a lot of people who are familiar with your work um, probably encountered you in your debate with Bill Nye. And do you have any advice for Christians when they're dealing with a culture that doesn't believe the word of God and how they should navigate that? Yeah, I certainly do, actually, because I believe in many ways a lot of Christians are arguing the wrong way. I believe that uh, there's a lot of Christian leaders and some, you know, who would call themselves apologists who are who are giving people some wrong advice. And why do I say that? You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's God's word that convicts. It's God's word um, that opens our heart uh, to the truth. It's God's word that's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and I want to say that to say this. There's this idea today that, oh, when you're dealing with a culture that doesn't believe God's word, that you can't really use God's word in witnessing to this culture, or you know, you certainly can't start with God's word. But see, here's the point. We've got to understand that everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a religion. And there's only two ultimate religions. It comes down to God's word, man's word. There's only two ultimate foundations to build your worldview, God's word or man's word. And and to give you a practical example so we can sort of make it practical, um, as I say to people, look, if you don't use God's word, then you don't have a foundation for your worldview. Then the other person has their foundation, that is man's word, then in essence, they've won the debate. That's why when I debated Bill Nye, my whole purpose was not to just come in and talk about evidence, but how you interpret evidence, which depends upon your starting point, and that certainly we can use interpretations of evidence and use observational science in the present to confirm uh, what God's word says, but uh, ultimately my starting point is God's word. And so I say that to say, for instance, uh, I've had someone come up to me at a conference and say, I believe in gay marriage, I'm gay, What what do you say to that? And I said, well, I'm a Christian. So I start from the Bible as a foundation for my thinking to build my worldview. Can I explain to you why I believe what I do? And he said, don't give me the Bible. Don't give me that Bible stuff. I don't believe the Bible. Give me some other evidence, but not the Bible. One of the most asked questions I've had from Christians over the years is, what evidence can we give someone who doesn't believe the Bible? Because you can't use the Bible is what they say. And I said, but if you don't use the Bible, you've lost your foundation. You don't have your foundation. And so what I say is this, and this is sort of a conversation. It depends on where they're at and what questions they ask, but it sort of goes like this. Uh, you don't believe the Bible? No. Well, I do, though, and I'm a Christian. And that's where my thinking comes from. Let me ask you a question. Why don't you believe the Bible? What Do you think science has disproved the Bible? I mean, what makes you think the Bible is not true? And let me ask you a question. Where do you, where do you get your ideas from? What do you believe about who you are and where you came from? And how do you decide what's right and what's wrong or good and what's bad? Does everyone else have the same right and wrong as you or good as bad as you? What I'm doing is arguing foundationally. And one of the things I found today is a lot of Christians, when they're dealing with the moral issues of the day, whether it's gay marriage or abortion, the gender issues, LGBT, they tend to argue at the worldview level 
and it comes across as being intolerant and with hate speech. They call it hate speech. What I do with people is let, help them understand the reason I have the worldview I do is because I start here from God's word. This is what it says. This is why I believe what I do. If you don't have the same foundation as me, you're going to have a different worldview. I want you to understand I totally get it while you have a different worldview because you have a different foundation. And if we don't have the same foundation, we're not going to agree up at this level. I find arguing foundationally like that takes the emotionalism out of the argument. And I did that when I spoke at the University of Central Oklahoma with a lot of non-Christians and the LGBT group in the audience that accused me uh, before that time of hate speech because you know we're Christians and believe God created marriage as one man and one woman and so on. And when I use that approach of saying, I want you to know why I believe what I do, that doesn't mean I hate you, but I have a different worldview to you because I have a different starting point. I had secular professors come up to me and say, thank you for the way you present it because you you, you you took the emotionalism out of it all. You explained why you believe what you do and you didn't come across as hating those people. And I, that's how we need to argue as Christians. We need to learn to argue foundationally, using apologetics in the right way, but arguing foundationally. Boy, I think that is so true. Bishop, you would find the same thing in ministry, right? I mean, that's what you try to do with your people every week is get them into the Bible. Yeah, they need faith They need faith in the truth, and they have to have that foundation. And biblical worldview is so so lacking in our days, you know, a lot and, and a lot of Christians, just because I think they're— you know, they're, they're trying to be intellectual and, you know, they, they don't want to just dig into the scriptures. So yeah, believing scripture and, and going there for the foundation is imperative. And that would be a major challenge that we would want to leave with our people today, right? Uh, that that uh, that men learn to argue from your foundations, the foundations of the Word of God, and not and not engage in hate speech. Uh, we are to love even our enemies and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Yeah. Well, Ken, we want to thank you so much for your time today. We want to be mindful of your time and uh, your wealth of information. I'm sure this could go on much longer, but we want to thank you for coming on to the show today. Hey, um, thank you. Yeah, it could go on for millions of years. But I don't believe in millions of years. <laughs> That's great. That's great. We want to thank everyone at home for listening to this episode of the Forge Truth Podcast. If you have any questions or comments on what we talked about today, you can email the show at forge at forgetruth.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Forge movement, you can check out our website at forgetruth.com. We'd love it if you've helped get the word out about the podcast by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star rating and review for the show. It goes a long way in helping people find the show and feel free to share with a friend as well. Again, thanks for listening and have a good week. Mm-hmm.